From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 163 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm excited. It's a big day for us. It is. It is. Yeah, we have Don Hahn back on the show. We gave you a little hint last week, Mm -hmm. so you probably all figured it out. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure they all figured it out. But yeah, it's very (laughs) exciting. So, of course, uh, back back for some some video fun and not the only video fun that we have this month, actually. But uh, yeah, back back with video fun and and interviewing Don Hahn again, which it's been a couple of years now, but still always exciting when you can sit sit down and talk to someone who has had such a huge impact on on Walt Disney Studios throughout the years. So it's very, very cool. It is. Has it been that long? I thought it was just a few months ago. Dear <laughs> Lord. Time. When you get older, time just it, it it just gets in a sports car and puts it in the high gear and speeds down that calendar speedway. <laughs> oh well. Anyway, well you know speaking of, of dreams unlimited travel and all that, I um I kept hearing Kevin on our Walt Disney World show talking about how there are openings on the. Dreams Unlimited Travel Exclusive Adventures by Disney Egypt Trip. And I just decided, you know, I've had a rough year and a half. <laughs> so I I just and we've all had a tough 2020. I needed something to look forward to. So I'm um I signed up for it. And we'll see what happens. But it's a great itinerary, and I know the Diz will add their um, special touches to the trip. But I figured if I'm going to see the sphinxes and the pyramids, I I want to do it in the Disney bubble. Yeah. So it's a it's going to be very exciting for you. So if I learned anything from uh, walking around Adventureland here at Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World, it's don't let the camels spit on you. And I think that <laughs> that would hold true in Egypt as well too. So maybe just avoid camels while you're over there, and and you'll be fine. Okay, so but but still okay to fly on the on the magic carpets, oh, right? <laughs> yeah, if you see any magic carpets flying around Egypt, go for it. Just camels, stay away. It spits okay. on you and ruins your day, and yeah, it's it's not worth it. Okay, and then I also decided, you know, even though Destination D was canceled, um, I still had my reservations, and I just decided, you know, I'm going to go. Mm-hmm. And just relax, have a good time. Maybe go to the parks. Maybe I'll even go to Universal. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, so I'm going to head down to Walt Disney World in November, and I might be going in March because, as we learned today on the Diz, 
connected to our, and I'm going to let you talk about this, Craig, but connected to our auction for Give Kids the World and Labor Day Marathon. I mean, there's a whole lot going on. So do you want to share some of that? Yeah, I would be more than happy to. So this uh, coming Monday, Labor Day Monday, it's no longer, it's the long Labor Day weekend. But yes, uh, Monday Labor Day, we are doing a 12-hour marathon for Give Kids the World from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find that at youtube.com slash disunplugged. I'm sure it'll be on the homepage of uh, the Diz as well to wdwinfo.com as well as disunplugged.com. And we are doing, yes, another one of our 12-hour marathons to raise money for Give Kids the World like we've gotten used to us doing uh, every November, right? always the, the first Saturday after Thanksgiving, but we're doing it early this year. Uh, it's, it's a complete partnership with Give Kids the World. They, they have uh, been asking us to, to help them out with this, so we're, we're just jumping ahead of time and, and doing this a little bit sooner than we have in years past, but it is uh, pretty much all the same that you could expect from any other mar- marathon shows we've done in the past before. Uh, there's going to be an auction that is already live now. We are, we are into the uh, fourth day of bidding at this point. And you can do so on hand bid. So uh, if you've done any of our past Diz Unplugged auctions before, we use an application called Handbid. And uh, that's how you're able to bid on any of the items that have been donated. I think there's something like a couple hundred items, maybe even more than that. Maybe like there's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember that the number 500 got thrown out. I think it was they had 500 items that they could have put on for this and they just they held back a little bit, but I mean a lot of items ranging from movie memorabilia to to random park memorabilia. It's it's all over the place. There's mm-hmm. there's probably something there that that you can find that you would love. On top of that too, there's also uh there's also a raffle that I believe it's twenty five dollars per entry and you have a chance of winning a four night cruise on Disney Cruise Line, courtesy of Dreams Unlimited Travel when when Disney Cruise Line is back up and running again. So that's an option. You can make direct donations if you have nothing else you're interested in. And I have a feeling that there's going to be some bids on one item in particular that will be added to the auction. It's, uh, it is a, a signed copy of Dave Bossert's uh, forthcoming book, 3D Disneyland, that you're actually going to get to hear about more during the the live marathon show that is going to be one of the pre-recorded segments that that we get to release you'll get to see it then and if you miss out on it during the interview it will be then released as a whole episode on friday with connecting with walt so you'll still have a chance to watch it if you don't get to watch it uh live in the moment but you're going to get to hear about the book you're going to get to hear about some some of the pictures you can see in the book and then it's it's going to make you want to bid for the signed copy of of 
Dave's newest book. So there's lots of exciting stuff uh, there. And if you want more information about our auction, I'm going to link to a video that we have that we we recorded with Stephen Amos from Give Kids the World that kind of explains a little bit more about the auction, uh, some of the items that we're really interested in in terms of the auction. And then also that's where we revealed the information that we will be having a huge event coming up in March. Uh, again, a cooperation along with Give Kids the World, where we will be doing a, a big meetup, unlike anyone that we've done in the past, because there's going to be uh, important people in Disney. Uh, Disney President Jeff Valley apparently is going to be a part of it. Uh, they're going to get some of the Mickey Mouse Club, the 90s Mickey Mouse Club reunions. And if Michael's there, we can add in an earlier Mickey Mouse Club as well, too. I'll just, oh, yeah, we'll push sure. you up on the stage with them and be like, they're, they're all together. They're all, they're all in the same club. And, uh, but they're going to be a part of it. I it, literally, it's, it, I hadn't heard about it until we were recording this announcement for it. So I still don't even know everything that's going to be involved, but it's going to be a multi-day event with lots of presentations. And on top of that, there's going to be the touches that, that, the Diz and Dreams Unlimited Travel always puts into these meetups. There will be another auction as part of it as well, too, to raise money for Give Kids the World. I know that there's details coming forward about room blocks and such for the people who want to make sure that they're getting great rates on on their vacation if they're planning on coming to the event. And there's uh, there's just so much more to be announced with this event, and it's going to be it's going to be talked about more and more as we get closer to the event now but uh this is that your heads up on it and it was i blank i'm blanking on the dates honestly michael you it's march 20 25th 26th and 27th thank you mm-hmm. so and uh you know so at the very least if you're interested maybe block out those dates as possible for being here who knows maybe more gets added and they extend the fun i have i i have no idea don't quote me on that don't try to say that craig sent you saying that there was going to be extra fun added on the front and end of it i that is probably not the case but uh at the very least we know there's going to be a lot of fun on on those three days so just stay tuned for more details yeah looking forward to it yeah just a reminder that we'll be continuing our exploration of Walt Disney's Disneyland Man in Space television series with the second episode of the series Man in the Moon. It's available on the Disney Treasures DVD set called Tomorrowland. And it's also on YouTube. And Craig will include the link in our show notes so you can watch it in advance. Well, it's our pleasure to welcome back director, producer, and writer Don Hahn to talk about lyricist and director Howard Ashman. In 2018, Don produced the documentary Howard that is now streaming on Disney+. Don, welcome back to Connecting with Walt. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, and congratulations on another brilliant documentary with Howard. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was a real pleasure putting it together and... uh, and telling his story because I was worried it would get lost if we didn't. Yeah, I mean, my daughter who grew up with Little Mermaid, she and she doesn't have the Disney gene like I do and like my <laughs> granddaughter does. Right. But when it debuted and she was visiting, I said, "Hey, 
do you want to watch this documentary? And it, she loved it. And it oh, blew really? me away. Really? Yeah. And she loved all the behind the scenes that yeah. you shared, especially. And then, then immediately afterwards, we, we wanted to watch Disney film that Howard Astron made. And we ended up watching Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> uh, yeah, it uh, it kind of changes your perspective on some of his work. So uh, that's a great it, thing. It absolutely does. Um, I, I went back and watched a number of his films after mm-hmm. that. I was telling Craig, I rewatched Little Shop of Horrors, uh, The Little Mermaid, and Beauty and the Beast. And you're right, it was a completely different perspective on yeah. his films. Yeah. So now for... A generation like my children, Howard Ashman, wrote the soundtracks of their childhood. So for folks who are not familiar with Howard Ashman and his work, can you give us some background on Howard and his career? Well, um, Howard was you know, born in Baltimore, uh, loved um, musical theater, probably coming out of the delivery room. Um, as a young kid, he put on shows like a lot of us did. You know, you, you'd put on shows for your family or whatever, but his were um, highly produced, uh, whether they were puppet shows or shadow shows or whatever. For kids in the neighborhood, he would draft kids in the neighborhood to be in his shows. Um, and he pretty early wanted to be an actor or involved in um, in theater. There was a children's theater organization in Baltimore that his mom took him to, and he was really involved in um, and so that, that was kind of the early part of his path. He, he went on to college, um, to uh, Boston University, into Goddard, and ended up at Uni- Indiana University. Um, and then in his 20s, like remarkably, he moved to New York um, and set up a theater. It, it's almost unbelievable that you could do that because it would be unaffordable these days. But this is back in the 70s, and um, you'd actually go live in New York and find a derelict section of town and find a place to live and, and find a, a, you know, an old building you could start a theater in. So he had tremendous ambition and that was a theater he could workshop his, um, his, um, you know, work in and, and he wanted to be a director. He wanted to be a playwright. Uh, and that's the theater, the little shop of horrors came from. And that was kind of his start. Now, one of the segments that I thought was magical is how you created some vignettes that Howard created as a little boy with his sister Sarah narrating how Howard loved to tell stories and it was her job to be the audience. Yeah, I, I really was taken by that story. The idea of this little girl who's younger than Howard uh, being his first audience and, um, and Howard saying, you know, you wait, wait outside the door until I get in here and I'm going to set up this little show just for you. And, um, and I was looking for some sort of uh, kind of fun fantasy elements to the documentary because documentaries can be dry sometimes. And so I, I went around and found a lot of um, 1950s toys. And uh, thanks to my, my producer, Lori Corncable, um, we went shopping on eBay and we found all these little toys and we set up this little vignette of what it might have been, you know, and, and um, tried to visualize what Sarah, Howard's little sister, was talking about. So it was a chance to kind of break the ice and just say, you know, this this guy was, um, even as a child, kind of full of fantasy and full of putting on shows and welcome you into his worlds that he was creating. And I think that gave the audience almost permission to kind of uh, buy into that idea and buy into Howard's worlds and, and understand that we're going to tell you a story about a really special guy. Um, so that was a really fun kind of way to... Um, 
to, to bridge you into Howard's world. And I also didn't want the documentary to get too dark. You know, it's Howard's life was not dark. He had a um, tragic ending in the, in the, uh, you know, AIDS crisis in the 1990s, um, late eighties. Uh, but the rest of his life, I think was joyful and full of um, great work and, and striving and, um, you know, some achievements and failures and things that all of us go through. So I wanted the movie to start out and finish with that idea that even though this guy may have had uh, a difficult ending to his life, he really didn't want to be and shouldn't be defined by that. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the stories I've heard Sarah tell is, I mean, as a little boy, I mean, Howard, I mean, he put on major musical productions. I mean, he did Gypsy. He staged Gypsy. Yeah. And that he didn't care for how the... um, girl he had cast was doing the striptease scene and he Mm. fired her Mm -hmm. and i thought so he already knew that okay i know how i want it to be at a young age and then the mother got upset that her daughter had been fired yeah (laughs) can you imagine he fires this little girl and then he he go ahead he goes ahead and does the uh, kind of stripper scene himself behind a big sheet in shadow you know in shadows and things he was, uh, I guess the word would be opinionated, opinionated um, controlling, those kinds of things. And and those aren't always a bad thing in a creative environment. You know, it's, sometimes it's, um, you know, it, it's a, 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 he was a collaborator. He was absolutely a collaborator. But he had strong feelings about what the idea should be. And he had really strong feelings about what would work and what wouldn't work. And, um, and that's something that uh, was really enjoyable to work with. You had to bring your A game. I mean, you had to wake up in the morning and come to the studio and work with Howard with your best um, best foot forward and your your most articulate arguments about what you wanted in a show because he would come with his just naturally. He's really smart, really funny, uh, and able to articulate what he wanted. So um, it just made us all step up our game when he got to Disney Animation to be able to uh, do the same. Yeah. Now, a turning point in Howard's life was when he met Stuart white when they were in college and and mm. that was howard's first big love and stewart was a director and the only director howard trusted with his work when they along with um, kyle rennick opened that off-broadway theater you mentioned the wpa and that's when howard uh, his work to the wpa that howard got recognition from broadway producers yeah he really and, did and it was um i suppose he he did many things. He did some of his own work uh, that Stuart could direct. He did uh, just work that he wanted to see that was perhaps underproduced. Um, and then he began to do uh, shows. I think uh, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater was probably mm-hmm. one of his first shows in the WPA theater. And Kyle Rennick was his uh, managing director of that theater and um, and became an amazing friend and resource for this movie. I didn't know Kyle before this. Um, and I think he was maybe suspicious of us when we came in and said, gee, we want to make this movie. Will you talk to us? But he became such a wonderful resource and gave us um, hours of audio tape and, and photographs and that kind of thing. And, and sadly, um, he passed away at the very end of this process. So we've kind of lost him along the way. But um, it was full of stories about Howard, and and that was the theater where Howard really did get some recognition. Um, So, you know, he was very fearless about the work he put on. Imagine a show like Rosewater, um, you know, which was Kurt Vonnegut's, you know, fairly well-known book. 
he didn't go to Vonnegut at first and ask for rights or anything. It reminded me a little bit of Walt Disney and Mary Poppins. He just said, let's develop this and see if we can't take it anywhere. And then he asked for the rights. So, um, and Vonnegut loved it in the end and, and wanted to help him out. So, um, yeah, very fearless about his approach to things. And after that, then, is when he did Little Shop of Horrors and really controlled everything. You know, he was the writer and he was the lyricist and he was the director and, um, you know, really did everything to control that piece of work. And as a result, the, the stage show of Little Shop is very tight and very, um, you know, reflects Howard perhaps better than anything. And his partnership between Alan Menken and Howard Ashman began when they worked together on the musical God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. So how did they get together for that musical? Well, they were both, um, you know, in New York working at the same time. Alan had written some songs for Sesame Street, some commercial jingles. Alan was in the Lehman Engel workshop in New York and, um, so he got introduced or heard about Howard from, um, you know, a friend and acquaintance who said, you really should meet this guy. He's kind of interesting. And Howard was looking for musicians because Howard wasn't a musician. He was totally a musician because he sang and performed everything that he wrote, but he didn't play an instrument. He didn't play piano. Um, so Maury Yeston, one of uh, Alan's friends said, Oh, you got to meet this guy named Howard. And, um, so he went over to his place and met Howard and um, Howard was auditioning for composers and really thought Alan was a good fit. And Alan's um, gift among many things is that he also could, could kind of serve up any form of musical theater or idiom or pastiche that Howard wanted. So to sit and work with them, Howard was, you know, very in charge almost about what they were doing, but Alan would be able to sit there and play it all on the piano. If, uh, Howard said Viennese waltz. If Howard said um, something like the uh, opener of the second act of this Sondheim show, or that you know he would have this musical reference also, and became this this um, musical right hand to Howard, and their collaboration was really good. And I think um, Alan is incredibly gifted in in as you know in his musical ability to get a melody in your head and not get it out. I, there's not many people like that. I mean, there's, I suppose there's some popular musicians, the Elton Johns of the world that can do that. Um, Richard Sherman can do that, but it's a, it's a short list. And um, so that was a perfect match, I think for Howard. And even though Howard stepped away and uh, collaborated with uh, Marvin Hamlish at one time, he always came back to Alan uh, because of that relationship they could have. And Marvin's amazing too. I mean, he's no slouch, but um, that was a less successful relationship. Um, than it was with Alan. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now, Little Shop of Horrors went on to be made into a feature film and was also successful. Was Howard pleased with the film adaptation of his stage musical? I, I I don't know. I think he was he was very pleased it was being done. He was very much a part of the process. Wrote the screenplay for it. Um, David Geffen was very. Um, you know, was sure that Howard was involved and in the middle of it all. I think it was difficult at times because they had to um, rewrite the end of the movie because when they tested it, the audience didn't like the ending that had originally been part of the stage show, um, which is a kind of darker ending where the monster eats Manhattan. Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> um, spoiler alert in reverse. Um, 
so he you know he had difficulty on it every movie has its challenges but he did it and he did it quickly and he did it willingly um so yeah i i also think for howard it's always difficult to give up things and to say here to frank oz you take the show and um i'll i'll help was probably not the easiest thing but frank oz is a great guy and a great uh, director so i think in the end yeah he probably was happy with the with the movie i know that i I think I read one story where the producers or something said that they thought suddenly Seymour could be a hit, could be a single and all that. But they said, but for us to sell it, you need to change it to suddenly someone. And yeah. Howard said, sorry, the title is suddenly Seymour. And that was the end of it. <laughs> well, the yeah, and the, the nuance of that is suddenly Seymour has a wink in it. It's it's a funny like song title. It has a little bit of a tongue in cheek thing to it. Suddenly, someone or somewhere or whatever the other ideas were uh, sound more legitimate and more you know self serious. Well, he didn't want that. He realized that in that for the movie to work and for the show to work it had to have that wink or that spin on it that made it actors very sincerely performing this material that was um, really satire in a funny way of everyday life. You know, when you can write lyrics about your, your house with a, a chain link fence and a, um, you know, garbage disposal and those <laughs> kinds of things and, and perform it with heart and sincerity. That's very funny, but also poignant. So it's a really razor's edge that Howard's walking with these things that uh, some people may not have seen right away. And it's brilliant. It is. Yeah. And there is some adult language in there, mild adult language. Uh-huh. So, um, so Howard, you know, he, he definitely walked the edge on that as well. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was funny is that the, you know, his theater, the WPW theater was a 99 seat theater. So small very small. And, uh, and yet when those shows were on, everybody who was anybody in New York, uh, made trip down to, um, you know, the gosh, 23rd street, 22nd street, where his his show was to this derelict kind of crappy section of town to see his shows. Cause they were so good. And that was part of the adventure of seeing a little shop of horrors and, and Rosewater is, it wasn't Broadway. It was off, off Broadway. And, and you had to, almost take your life into your old hands to go down there. And when you got there, you would, you would see this amazing treat of these kids putting on this show that was just funny and interesting and, um, and dynamic. And it was a time in, in uh, New York, I think that was very special and Howard grew out of that time. And during this time, Howard met Bill Louch at a bar in the village and they immediately clicked. And Bill said that a couple of days later, he, um, Howard called, asked him on a date, and it was to the Grammys. And mm-hmm. I was always curious, what was the third date like? I mean, how do you talk <laughs> going to the Grammys? Yeah, uh, I but, know, I know. <laughs> but Bill gave Howard the domesticity that he had always longed for. And... Yeah, and yeah. and he did. And that was a revelation, I think, when I made this movie, is I didn't... You know, when you work with someone, you feel like you know them a little bit. We really don't know the people we work with that much. Um, and so being able to turn back and tell this story and find out more about Howard's personal life, because I want to tell the story about the whole man, the what his entire worldview was. 
you find he was a guy who just wanted some normalcy in his life because that allowed him to free up his time and his efforts towards um, his work. And so he wasn't uh, necessarily the guy that would go out and party all night. You know, he, he I think he enjoyed uh, going to shows, watching movies, you know, staying home, watching TV. And um, and that was a good match for Bill, who uh, and their relationship and their love for each other was uh, really evident. The more I dug into this and the more I tar- you know, started telling his story. Yeah. Yeah. And then also during this time, the whole specter of what was called the gay cancer loomed over the gay community and would later be given a name, HIV AIDS. And Howard's first love, Stuart, succumbed to it when he was just 34. And another friend of Howard's, David Evans, also passed of the disease. And this deeply affected Howard. Yeah, um, I I think it deeply affected everyone, obviously. It was a very challenging time, not unlike what we're living through now, but perhaps um, even worse, because it really hit um, a community in New York that was very close to the creative community, um, initially to the LGBTQ community. And it was very uh, difficult. I remember even in Los Angeles, losing all these people who were brilliant uh, composers and choreographers and and just people that were um, dropping like flies. And, um, and, and the death sentence that uh, HIV and AIDS brought to someone who contracted it was um, a part of the dynamic that was really different than perhaps what we're experiencing now. Yes, there is uh, a horrible pandemic going on, but at that time, um, yeah, it really was a death sentence. There was no cure. There was no uh, treatment per se. And that's what was so uh, horrific about it all. Yeah, the, the lack of knowledge was what was so frightening about it. I think yeah, too. and the and and no government help or or um, political help was slow in coming, um, as is the case with uh, everything in life, I suppose. And um, and luckily there were people around, you know, like Dr. Fauci was was one of the the uh, who we hear all the time now was one of the leading AIDS researchers for years, and and really pioneered a lot of the treatments. Um, even going back to that time that Howard was alive. So there were uh, wonderful people in the scientific community that really pushed ahead on treatments, um, but not an easy time to uh, contract the disease. Yeah. Now, Howard's next project was a musical about a beauty pageant, Smile, and that's the one where he teamed up with, with Marvin Hamlish. And that is um, where he met Jody Benson. She was one of the actors and performed probably the one song that has survived this musical and that's Disneyland and it's been performed by many other artists and the weird thing is Smile was a hit with the opening night audience but the critics panned it and this just devastated Howard yeah yeah I think whenever he had and I suppose we can relate to that because we're all about the same way we want people to like us and like our work and so whenever the critics didn't care for his work uh, no matter what it was, it really affected him deeply because he was a pretty sensitive guy and um, and he would have to, you know, take a break for months and kind of recharge and figure out what was next in his life. Um, so Smile is is a good show. I mean, it, it still gets performed a lot, um, particularly at girls' schools because it's about a beauty pageant. There's a lot of uh, 
the roles for girls in it. Um, Marvin Hamlisch is amazing, but their, their collaboration wasn't always as smooth. Um, and Howard had taken up the role of lyricist, writer, and director. And probably that was too much. It was, he was overwhelming. Um, so I think the show was, was good and well-received by the audiences, but just didn't connect with the critics, didn't connect. It wasn't star-driven. There wasn't a, a particular uh, celebrity that was driving the show. It just wasn't connecting at all and closed pretty quickly. But he did meet Jody Benson out of that and invited her to audition for the next project he was doing, um, which happened because Jeffrey Katzenberg, the head of Disney, and, uh, and Dave Geffen were friends. And Geffen said, you should really bring... Uh, this guy Howard Ashman out and have him work on some of your movies. So um, Katzenberg was really courting uh, Howard heavily at that time. Um, and, and eventually that's where uh, Howard ended up out in Los Angeles. Yeah. I mean, this, this is really where, you know, a door is closed, but a window is open because yeah. Howard loved Disney animation because he believed it was the last place to do great Broadway musicals. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Broadway was a mixed bag back then, especially um, big, highly produced Broadway shows. Uh, there were a few of them. Um, but, you know, gosh, I suppose what? Phantom of the Opera, a lot of um, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice shows, which are great. Uh, but not a lot of uh, things that Howard liked to do himself. Um, and his off-off-Broadway sensibility didn't, didn't quite fit the big commercial houses that would seat, you know, two, 3000 people on Broadway. So animation was a place uh, where music and musicals was really a comfortable fit. And it's also a culture that was comfortable for him. I think um, he worked a little bit in live action when he got to Hollywood, but he found in animation, a group of collaborators who were for the most part, fun, humble people um, who enjoyed making cartoons for a living. And that was a, a little bit different than the Hollywood of big egos and, um, you know, phone calls and lunches. I think his, his work with animation was a very comfortable fit in terms of personalities and the kind of people that, um, uh, you know, he could work with easily. And, you know, I, I, we loved him. It's not too much of an exaggeration to say that we really loved the guy because um, as, um, as good as his work was, it was thrilling when his songs came in or when he was in the studio to work, he was demanding and he was difficult, but he was also hilarious and funny and smart and and to have somebody like that in the studio you can imagine it was like this injection of adrenaline into a place that was a little bit sleepy for a long time and uh, we were a young studio we were ourselves kind of in our 20s and 30s wanting to do some good work um and and starting to do some good work movies like uh, great mouse detective and oliver mm -hmm. and company that howard wrote a song for they're good movies um but they hadn't really broken through to be a general audience movie. And Howard gave us that um, confidence, I think, in saying, oh, here now we're working with someone who really has a, a different point of view and breaks us out of our Disney mold, which had gotten a little um, lazy, to be honest, and takes us to a new place. And those are all really exciting things. Now, in the documentary, you state that Howard taught the team how to approach storytelling. So what did you what did the team learn from Howard? Well, I think in particular storytelling with music, um, we had many very talented storytellers on the staff and writers and things. Um, so working out stories was uh, possible, but we were making movies that had a few songs in them. They weren't musicals. They were 
you know, just animated movies. Um, and yes, occasionally you would stop for a song, but what Howard brought to it is to say, no, 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 you really have to, to reverse that and say, if you're going to make a musical, the songs drive the plot. And when your character uh, is full of emotion or, or grief or anger, that's where the songs have to go. And you have to be brave enough to put those songs there. So that was a big breakthrough. Uh, it wasn't just that you went to, you know, in, in Great Mouse Detective, you go to a, a, a little tavern in London and someone's singing up on stage and it's a little song. Well, that's not a musical. Uh, a lovely moment, but not a musical. So Howard says, no, you take the big emotional, you know, changing points in your story and you put the songs there. Um, and so that started us thinking in a different way. And the songs became tent poles for us in our storytelling. Um, you were able to, um, you know, take those songs when a song like uh, Be Our Guest came in the door or Bell, the opening of Beauty and the Beast. You could put that into work. And you could storyboard it. And it established the character and the setting and that Bell was an outcast in her town and it established who Gaston was and LeFou was and that Bell was different from everybody in all of that was in the context of this song. So I can't say it made our job easier, but it made it clearer what we had to do. Um, and, and that collaboration with Howard really was what taught us about making these musicals. It, it reminds me of what critics said about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, that it was a musical where the, the music drove the stories, because up until then, the, the movies would, the musicals would, you know, go along and then suddenly everybody would stop and sing and but yeah. it didn't propel the story so the disney studios what really was groundbreaking in that way and then so howard ashman really continued that tradition from walt's very first feature animated film yeah that's a really interesting comparison because walt wasn't a musician um, but he had a huge appreciation for music. And uh, from the very earliest uh, cartoons and the earliest soundtracks, they were always based on music. The director's office was called the music room in uh, in the Hyperion studio. There was always a composer sitting there next to the director during the shorts era. And when he got to features, you're, you're right. It was all about um, using songs to tell story. Howard said even you know songs like Hi Ho from Snow White would have been a perfect uh, kind of Broadway musical opener for a second act, you know, so you've gone out and you've had your interval and your intermission, you've come back, you sit down, the curtain goes up and you hear somebody, you know, yell in the, in the, in the theater, hi, ho, and, and the dwarves come out and all of a sudden you're back into the story again. And so he had a appreciation for the Disney movies along with Broadway. He always said, and I think I put this in um, Waking Sleeping Beauty that there's nothing like a Disney musical. And, and he always tried to put his movies like Beauty and the Beast for Disney on the shelf with Cinderella and Peter Pan and Snow White. So you could really feel like, yes, that's something that belongs there. And that was, that was um, emboldening. I think if that's a word for us uh, in the studio at the time, because we thought, wow, we can, we can do that. We can try to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, and, but it was during the production of The Little Mermaid, Howard went to the doctor because he'd seen white patches on his throat, and he knew it was thrush, which is a type of fungus. And the doctor wanted to test for HIV, but and this is just so tragic. He had to decline because he knew he would lose his health insurance. So as a compromise, the doctor tested for T-cells, which is a type of white blood cell, and it was so low that the doctor knew Howard had HIV. And... 
It's been said that this diagnosis affected how Howard approached writing lyrics for some songs and that he became a little more difficult to work with. Well, I think any diagnosis uh, like that would affect you. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it In the room working with Howard, um, it, it never came up. We never talked about his illness, never talked about AIDS, never talked about any of that. It's always about the work, always about uh, what was going on that day. But um, it was not something that we brought up or were aware of uh, when we were working on Beauty and the Beast. You know, some people say, well, that's really a story about the AIDS crisis. And the beast is the metaphor for a person who's been cursed uh, by this uh, disease. And I I suppose in retrospect, that may be the case. We never talked about that in the room. That was never intentional. And probably never intentional in Howard's mind. Who knows? Um, But the flip side of that is, as an artist, any artist um, probably can't help bringing some of what's going on in their life to their work. And um, Beat and the Beast being a metaphor for the AIDS crisis may... um, have had some, uh, you know, resonance in the in the uh, in the work that he turned out for that movie. Um, so we'll never know completely. Uh, all I know is that he focused on the story. He focused on what worked for the movie, um, and that's what uh, what ended up on the screen. And if there was any overture, over overtones, or echoes of that in terms of uh, what was going on in the news, um, that we left that as something other people could interpret. One of the things that really touched me is that. Even in Howard's final days, his creative drive didn't fade, and he actually wrote the song Prince Ali for Aladdin from his hospital bed, and that he listened to recordings by phone. And I just thought, how remarkable of him to be able to do that. Yeah, Yeah, we we had set up um, as much of that as we could once we learned that he was sick, because in the beginning we didn't know. And and we worked with him in New York uh, partially thinking he was just <clears throat> being a diva about saying, you know, I have an Oscar now, you have to come to me. Um, but what we didn't know is he was ill. So we, we set up, um, you know, a, a way of setting up speakers in his house so he could listen to a, a good quality sound of what we were doing. We flew back to New York and worked with him a lot um, by his house. And um, when he was in the hospital or at a place where none of us could travel, he really um, did just get on the phone. And, and had lost his voice and would just would just whisper and just say, okay, when you get to the second, you know, and, and everybody was quiet in the studio waiting for this guy to say something on the phone. Um, and he didn't care. He just wanted to give the notes and, and make the, make the story better. Um, and he did. So uh, there's no way to describe easily what that felt like. We were uh, just pushing ahead, trying to get the movie done grateful that Howard was willing to contribute, wanting to contribute. He wanted it to be all about the work. He didn't want his life to be defined by um, AIDS. Um, And he didn't want to be seen as some sort of AIDS activist or AIDS warrior. He was who he was. He was a a dramatist. And, uh, And that's what he devoted his last days to. Yeah. Now, looking back, what effect did Howard Ashman have on you and your work? Well, I think uh, obviously a lot, and I think maybe more now. Uh, I'm, you know, 
I, I won't say at the end of my career, but I'm certainly after a large body of work. Um, looking back, um, he, he taught us how to be fearless. He taught us how to, to push for the highest quality solution um, to a problem, how not to settle for something that was mediocre or just okay. Uh, he taught us how to be clever and push for big ideas um, in terms of how to tell a story with music, how to mash up uh, uh, Hans Christian Andersen and a Rastafarian crab. Um, <laughs> so those kinds of things require some um, artistic bravery, for lack of a better word. And I've, I've been lucky to have other people in my life like that. Um, almost all of them at Disney. Disney was my university. Disney was my master class. And I showed up there when I was 20 years old. And so you can imagine um, I was like an empty bucket full of uh, nothing. And to be able to work with these men and women was revolutionary. And Howard was one of them. Uh, he was uh, the kind of guy without, you know, without having to be a, a mentor or a disciplinarian or anything else um, was instructive to all of us, to all of us. Talk to anybody that was there during that time and worked with Howard, and they'll tell you the same thing. So does his approach to storytelling still have an influence on Walt Disney Animation Studios today? Yeah, it does. You know, last, this will tell you about my personal life. Last night I was up till two in the morning watching the new show on Disney Plus about the making of Frozen 2. And uh, and I haven't been at Disney Animation for many years. And, and so watching them work was nostalgic almost because they're sitting around a table working with their songwriters going, that's just not telling the story. And we, you know, you can't put a ballad there. And they're just saying all these things that we used to say, and they're struggling with the same things we struggled with because it's hard. And they're asking the same questions that um, they should be asking, which is, uh, you know, this song, this piece of music in Frozen has to tell this story. This this character has to have a song moment because he doesn't have one. Um, so they're struggling with all the things that Howard struggled with, that Lerner and Lowe struggled with, that Rodgers and Hammerstein struggled with, which is how do you take something as wonderful and communicative of a language as the musical theater and use it to its maximum to tell a great story. And so I was sitting there with a big grin on my face because I just thought, yeah, these guys are suffering trying to tell this frozen story and good on them, you know, good for you that they're struggling and trying to do better work and trying to make it as brilliant as it is. Uh, and it really shows that that process. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, that that's a process that's very much alive now. And, and you can trace it back to Walt Disney and you can trace it back yeah. even before that to people who want to put amazing quality work into the world, a world that can be really mediocre sometimes and full of a lot of junk uh, to say the world doesn't need more junk. The world needs something that is uplifting and inspiring. And um, and that's what Howard taught me. Yeah. And, and I always look for the want song. In every yeah. Disney animated film now, <laughs> because of Howard. <laughs> it's almost a cliche, but Howard taught us that. And that's something that is, it makes sense. Even in uh, movies that are not musicals, you still have to have that soliloquy. I was talking to a director, the, the um, artistic director of the Globe Theater in San Diego, really great guy. And he was saying, well, you know, Shakespeare is a lot like musical theater. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's in Shakespeare, he would stop and have a soliloquy and have a character 
tell you about the feelings he or she was having, the feelings and the, and the drama going on in their life. And it's exactly like a character stopping and singing about it and what that character wants in life. And, and he said, there's such great crossover between directors that direct Shakespeare and direct that, directors that do musical theater because a, a song in a Howard Ashman uh, show is really a, a soliloquy set to music. It's a monologue that instead of you speaking, you are singing part of your world, but that's a monologue about what she wants. And I just thought what a brilliant association that is that all dramatists, um, you know, going back to the, you know, the pyramids are really after that moment where a character can stop and tell you what it's like to be a human being. Because at the end of the day, that's why we go to the movies. We want the lights to go down and we want somebody to say, this is what our life's like. How can you enjoy that in your life? Yeah. Absolutely. I had not thought of that with Shakespeare. I took a whole year's course on him, too, at university. But you're right. Now that I think about all the plays I had to memorize, um, wow. you're absolutely right. Yeah, the exams were the teacher would have a line, the professor would have a line, and you had to state who said the line, in what act, and in what context, and who was it to. Oh, that's much. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. That crazy? Yeah, I don't know how I passed that course. <laughs> anyway, so so when you think of Howard Ashman, what is the first memory or image that comes to mind? Oh boy, um, you know he he was big hearted. <clears throat> I think the the first image I suppose is um, he was always glad to see us. He was always grateful that we would get together. Um, and on one hand, he was a very warm, uh, giving person. Um, smart is right up there with the first images I would think of. Um, smart in a couple of ways. Smart in terms of his knowledge of musical theater and life and his preparation for what he was doing and his homework that he would do. And smart in terms of just being funny. You know, some of the funniest people I know are just also some of the smartest people I know. And uh, his his sense of humor um worked its way into his lyrics. You see it there. And uh, his lyrics are an indication of what he was like in, uh, in, in his personal life. Yeah. Yeah. Now is Howard available anywhere else besides Disney plus? It's not right now. It's just on Disney plus. Um, and I don't, I don't, there's no plans that I've heard of uh, for anything beyond that. So it's a um, pretty easy place to reach if you want to log in and, uh, yeah. and take a look at it. I and know. We're, we're, I- that is we are, you know, See, I think now, this is I, independent. Mm-hmm. So, well, it's wonderful. Now, you know, I have all your, I have your other documentaries like um, Waking Sleeping Beauty and all that. So I want it to be released on physical media because it's such a wonderful companion piece for that, for Waking Sleeping Beauty. So. Yeah, it may someday. <laughs> you know, it may. It's um, Disney and the way they release uh, product is all always a mystery and a bit, bit magical. Um, so, uh, and the the industry is changing, as you you guys know more yes. than anything. Is mm-hmm. the streaming world is where um, people live right now. And um, you know, I'm sitting in a room right now full of probably a thousand DVDs, and I'm not sure what to do with them. So. Um, <laughs> You know, I like to own things. I like to have them to watch, but also I know I can access most of these uh, somewhere online right now. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so, are are you working on any projects now you can talk about? You know, we just um, we just finished a project for Epcot Center of the Beauty and the Beast sing along for the French Pavilion. 
um, with Angela Lansbury, who is turning oh, 95 wow. next month. Um, oh my gosh, that's <laughs> remarkable. And you know, she's, uh, she's brilliant. Uh, we work with her because it's, uh, the sing-along is hosted by Mrs. Potts. And, um, we called her up and said, would you be interested in doing this? And I was a little apprehensive because I thought, well, you know, I, I don't know. I, I hope she wants to. And she did. And she came in just so bubbly and prepared and, and recorded some of the most beautiful, funny, great dialogue I've ever heard. Um, so we just finished that, and that's that's playing at Epcot as Epcot reopens again um, in the French Pavilion. And then I'm actually looking uh, and reading a lot of material for upcoming um, documentaries. Uh, Disney's doing a lot of adaptations of animated movies that we all worked on back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Mulan's a good example of that. Uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame's um, on the slate uh, for some day. And uh, so there's some of that in works. But I, I'm really looking for another story to tell about um, I just love doing them. I love documentaries because they can dig into someone's life in a way that you maybe didn't know. And I love making films about artistic heroes of mine. Um, and, um, and so that's kind of what I'm looking for right now. So Don, thank you for telling the story of the man, you know, behind the music and films we've enjoyed for decades. You know, it's, it's hard work on one hand, but, um, what an amazing treasure hunt and journey it's been for me and my crew to tell this story and dig a little deeper into Howard's life um, and get to work with, with his sister and with Bill and with all the people that were so generous in telling their version of Howard's story. So um, I really appreciate that. Absolutely. And thank you for being so generous with your time to come on. Yeah, yeah, connecting it's my with pleasure. Paul. I always love talking to you. It's, it's always a pleasure. So um, anytime, happy to, happy to do it. Wonderful. Well, when your next project is ready, I hope we're at the top of your list to come back and talk about it. You bet. <laughs> I would be honored. Now you can be our guest for This Week in Disney History. Well, here we are. First full week of September. And we're going to start out with September 6th. A documentary film directed and produced by Don Hahn. <laughs> How um, appropriate. And produced by Don and former Disney executive Peter Schneider, debuted at the Telluride Film Festival in Colorado on September 6, 2009. The film documents the history of Walt Disney feature animation from the making of The Fox and the Hound in 1981 to the release of The Lion King in 1994. So, Craig, what is the name of this documentary? That, of course, is Waking Sleeping Beauty. Right, which we just referred to. <laughs> when I saw this pop up, I had to um, had to bring it in. Yeah, I mean, that's, you can't get much perfect, much more perfect timing than that. So, it just right. all all flows together. <laughs> it does. It's funny. This whole week was all about closures at Disneyland of of attractions. So it was it was hard to sort of find other stuff and a few at Walt Disney World. I, I've thrown a couple in here. Okay. But anyway, but yeah, and and as we said in the interview, Waking Sleeping Beauty is a marvelous documentary where you see sort of see the fall and rise of um, Disney animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really well done. I agree. And and Howard Ashman was a big part of that rise, as we learned in our interview. 
Okay, September 7th. This animator, artist, and Disney legend is born in Los Angeles, California on September 7th, 1911. He may be best known for redesigning Mickey Mouse for his landmark role as the Sorcerer's Apprentice in Fantasia, a look which remains Mickey's official look to this day. What is the name of this Disney legend? I want to say... It's going to be a guess for me, but I want to say it's Fred Moore. Absolutely. Robert Fred Moore, better known as Freddie Moore. And despite his limited formal art training, Freddie Moore rose to prominence at the Walt Disney Studio very quickly in the early 1930s due to his great natural talent and tremendous appeal of his drawings. So Freddie worked on such Disney classics as Pinocchio. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Peter Pan. He later became resident specialist on animating Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. Moore's animation of the earlier Mickey design is especially memorable in the 1938 short Brave Little Taylor, the last significant appearance of the pie-eyed Mickey Mouse. Okay. All right, September 8th. This popular Disneyland attraction closed at 7 a.m., with a ceremony officiated by U.S. Navy Commander Robert Thomas on September 8th, 1998. What is the name of this attraction? Hmm. Can, can you repeat the question one more time for me, please? Sure. This popular Disneyland attraction closed with a 7 a.m. ceremony officiated by U.S. Navy Commander Robert Thomas on September 8th, 1998. What is the name of this attraction? The the only thing that would make sense in my mind is for it to have something to do with the submarines and have the Navy there for that. So I I would guess that just by default. That's right, because when they opened it, the Navy commissioned the submarines back in 1959, and they they decommissioned them in 1998. Luckily, unlike 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea at the Magic Kingdom, um, ours was resurrected. (laughs) And let's hope they keep it going. Because there's always rumors mm-hmm. they're going to close it down. Mm-hmm. I don't think they can close it down now after this day in Disney, or not this day in Disney history. That's what we're doing. Um, <laughs> one day at Disney. Thank you. Uh, it's after they did that special piece on the the <clears throat> scuba diver who goes down below Finding Nemo, Submarine Voyage, oh, and yeah. Jungle Cruise. Like They made a celebrity out of his job for them to then just shut down the submarines and be like, okay, well... Not as needed anymore. The, I, I think people would lose their minds over that. So hopefully it's submarines so. at some point, uh, even if yeah, the and, theme's different. And it fits so nicely in that corner of the park. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's always a rumor they're going to use that area for, uh, you know, the frozen area, True. Arendelle and all that. But, you know, rumors come and go. Mm-hmm. So let's hope that one goes. And they find another spot for it. Yeah. Well, for September 9th, what is the name of the Epcot parade that ran for the last time on September 9th, 2001? For 2001, I'm assuming, 
Oh man, this is where I'm going to be bad. Uh, so it's obviously tapestry. I just can't. Uh, I would assume that it was that didn't switch over to dreams yet, and it was still tapestry of nations. But I could be wrong on mm-hmm. that one. No, you're absolutely right. Very good. This featured puppets designed by Michael Curry, who later designed the puppets for The Lion King on Broadway and other theme park shows. And Tapestry of Nations first debuted in October 1999. I I enjoyed this parade. I have the soundtrack. I, and all that. I love the soundtrack still. I, I watch. I, I remember watching the parade once. Uh, def- it was it was Nations, not Dreams, but mm-hmm. uh, I prefer nations over dreams anyways i don't i don't like the dream 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 yeah <laughs> motif that repeats yes. over and over again yeah. yeah yeah i i saw both of them but um yeah it's it's too bad they can't figure out a way to have a parade in epcot maybe with the re-theming it to you know this magic kingdom 2.0 that they, they might figure out how to have one uh, and that would be the time <laughs> when the crowds are small and they can they can do that so yeah yeah okay on september 10th the illust what this illustrator and voice actor was born on september 10th 1982 and became the fourth official person to voice mickey mouse what is his name the fourth person in the list is uh, Brett Iwin. That's right. Absolutely. With the passing of Wayne Allwine, the third official voice of Mickey in 2009, Walt Disney Company looked within the company to find someone to perform the recognizable voice. Iwin Ron won the role after a company-wide search where the animator friend from Pixar submitted Iwin as a possibility. In a final edition, Rusi Taylor, the voice of Minnie Mouse and the widow of Wayne Allwine, helped in selecting Iwin. The only other two to voice Mickey full-time was Walt Disney himself and sound effects artist Jimmy McDonald. And, I mean, I think it was, Brett was working at Hallmark when he ended up uh, winning the job too. So uh, mm-hmm. just be like you said, because of his, his friend submitting them. So uh, that's, that's a good lesson to everyone out there that it doesn't matter what you're currently doing. You never know where you're going to end up uh, with your, that's, with your talents. That's very true. Very true. Okay. On September 11th, the following the morning terrorist attacks on the Pentagon, New York City's World Trade Center, and in the air over Pennsylvania on September 11, 2001, the Walt Disney World Resort in Florida and the Disneyland Resort in California closed without incident. This closure marks only the second time Disneyland has locked its gates in its 56-year history due to a national tragedy. What event caused Disneyland to close its gates for the first time? I'm stretching my brain on this one because I haven't, I haven't really done a read up on all the times that Disneyland and and Walt Disney World have has closed since the beginning of uh, COVID and all that when that was fresh in everyone's mind. But I I think I'm I'm on a hot streak, so I might I might continue being hot on this one. I think it might have been JFK is when they closed. Yes, it was the assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. Another day I remember vividly, even though I was only in second grade at the time. 
So, okay, September twelfth. After six years of planning and building costs of $1.8 billion, the Walt Disney Company opens its 11th theme park on September 12, 2005. What is the name of this resort? 2005 would have been Hong Kong, I believe. That's right. Hong Kong Disneyland. It is... Disney's fifth vacation resort and the 11th theme park in the world. It consists of the Hong Kong Disneyland theme park, two hotels, the Disneyland Hotel and Disney's Hollywood Hotel, and retail dining and entertainment facilities stretching over 310 acres on Lantua Island. Hong Kong Disneyland's Adventureland is the largest Adventureland of all the Magic Kingdom parks around the world. And as I've said before, I found this park very charming. And, you know, of course, they had to do a huge expansion because this park was built, even at $1.8 billion, it was built on the cheap. I read somewhere that they, for a while, Michael Eisner didn't even want a full castle. He just wanted like a facade that people would just walk through. That's how cheap they were trying to get. I don't think he could have lived that down. No, that that would be one of the most embarrassing things in any park. And and as we've joked about on this before, Walt Disney Studios is very embarrassing. But you know, even even there, you get to walk through the <laughs> the weird shopping dining center as you come into the park. So, ugh, oh yeah, that, that, yeah, that uh, park. That park needs a major overhaul. But it, when you get when you finally get to Hong Kong Disneyland, Craig, I think you are going to love it. One day. Yeah, <laughs> one day. Well, you did very well this week. Yeah. Congratulations. I was, on a, uh, I was on a hot streak there. All right. Well, Craig, I... I I, I thought I learned a lot about Howard Ashman from my, in, you know, my research and the documentary. But, you know, Don shared even more about Howard and his career and his um, approach to storytelling and films. I, it was I was really fascinated. A hundred percent. And, you know, one of uh, I, I one of my small complaints with with Howard that I've I've talked about with some other people. Uh, It's, it's a very beautiful and moving documentary. Uh, But I feel like one of the, one of the things that, that Don chose to, to do with it is making it all, all voiceover and instead of featuring talking head interviews. And sometimes in documentaries, you, that adds this extra deep, level of of clarity to the story and so i i felt like at times that that was that was kind of lacking in howard as much as i really enjoy that documentary and i think it's a must watch for any disney fan including anyone who's watching this show so being able to sit here and then get that story from don and hear some of the emotion and and see it coming from his lips that that kind of adds it right back in for me Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. uh it's it was a pleasure getting to sit here and and hear him 
talk more about it and and get get in just a little bit uh, a little bit further into the next level and uh, it's a very good complimentary uh, piece now to to watching Howard on Disney plus I agree thank you yeah but um, yeah and I, I know prob- I'm wondering if some of the issues too are that a lot of the people that they would have brought in are no longer with us. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, that's yeah. that's obviously the case. Is that it's it's hard when people have moved on, and on top of that, too, it's you then have to make a choice of okay, well, will we if we do all voiceovers, then it doesn't matter if it's archived or if it's brand new. So I completely get why they they went that route and why he made the decision to do it that way but it's there is a there's an extra level of emotion when when you see the the subject talking about it and mm-hmm. seeing seeing the look on Don's face as he he reminisced more about Howard there that's that's that extra spark that mm-hmm. it's just it's undeniable yeah i agree and um so if you haven't had an opportunity to watch Howard um, we hope this this sparks you to go in and watch it. And I know I'll rewatch it after speaking with Don because I'm going to go in with a new perspective and I think a, a deeper understanding yeah. of Howard. And so I, I'll definitely want to um, rewatch. Uh, again on top of that too i'm going to as long as i remember i'm going to include a link in our description and show notes to uh to the it wasn't 2019 it must have been 2017 the d23 expo where alan menken did uh his one-man show where he Mm -hmm. went through it all and alan menken uh shared he shares a good deal about Howard as that goes along too. And as gets into the songs that they wrote together, he, he shares a little bit of extra stories and stuff. A lot, a lot that's not necessarily new information, but again, just like this, it's, it's different when you're watching Alan sitting behind a piano, reminiscing about the times that he was writing music with his, his friend and, and partner in crime with, with music writing. So it's, uh, I'll make sure to try to include some of those ones in, in our description so you can see those and, and add that extra detail as well, too. That'll be wonderful. I'll look forward to seeing that concert again as well. It was good. It was. I remember. Yeah. It was excellent. So, so, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? You can find me on all the random shows on the Diz Unplugged podcast network that I'm on, and then always on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com, Twitter at mbowling121, Facebook at Michael Bowling. Uh, it's the connecting with Walt. Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt is the one you want to um, like. Instagram and Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disneyplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. 
Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 